The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hey everybody, my name is Stacy Croft. I'm the um, pastor here at Christ Pres Music Row. Good to see you. Uh, welcome if you're visiting, and welcome if you, this is your first time here and you're new to Nashville. Um, I don't know if this summer, uh, what you did with your summer, some of you um, paid a lot of money and uh, moved a lot of things in your summer to go to the Taylor Swift Eris concert, yeah. Uh, I don't know why that's funny, but okay. Um, So uh, they, uh, (laughs) uh, but many of you did. Uh, Many of you are Swifties, and I was, if I was to ask you to raise your hand, you probably wouldn't, and some of you would very you know, proudly. Uh, our very own Aaron McCabe is probably one of the greatest Swifties of all. If you ever want to have any questions about Taylor Swift, uh, both personally and, uh, you know, uh, professionally, she could probably answer those for you. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting about that concert um, is <clears throat> the number of things I heard about it. It's like the experience of it. Uh, that, that even if you didn't go, which I was not privy to go, but I felt like I received, I brushed up against it and kind of like, gosh, got a lot from it. Uh, whether it was from the number of wardrobe changes to the number of songs, uh, the incredible amount of songs that she sang, uh, 40 song plus songs, and then some, and then like the secret songs at the end. What are they going to be at this? You know, all that fun stuff. And see, doesn't it feel like you were there? But um, and then all the all the places that she went. I, I thought it was incredible just to hear um, her energy to be able to do that many songs and then back to back to back to back to back. Uh, it's just profound. And so I think a lot of people were just blown away by what she was able to do. Uh, but you know what was interesting is. Uh, no matter who you talk to, you didn't really hear somebody, like, nobody, like, walked around singing the song. So it's not like, so what's she sing? And you're, like, breaking out into the song. It was just everybody described what it was uh, and what it was like and just the buzz of that. And um, even, uh, gosh, my kid's school even made, like, a funny poster with the, te- the faculty with that, that, like, mimicked her poster, Eras tour poster, it was really funny. Like, everybody got into this. Uh, we're picking back up now. Um, you're like, how, how are you going to jump from that to the Bible? Uh, you know, we're picking back up again uh, this fall in uh, our new series in Acts. And we've been actually looking at the book of Acts in three major sections every fall. And we're going to kind of finish it up uh, where we are and what it means to be a part of the church. And I'm going to read you a passage in um, Acts chapter 19 that is um, really interesting. Because what Acts is about, the the book of Acts that was written by Luke. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So Luke, one of the gospel writers, actually wrote Luke. And then he also wrote Acts as a volume two. So if you read it, you can see not only Luke, the the, the accounts of Jesus. You read Acts and how did... How did the gospel, how did Christianity, how did the church become from this small thing worldwide? How did it move into the rest of the world? And the passage I'm going to read this morning is interesting because what you're going to notice at first is, okay, how did this thing called the church, and you'll hear it, the way, which is what the church was called then, the way, impact a city? 
How did it get into a city? How did it get in almost like into the water supply of a city and direct how not only the day-to-day and impact what was going on in the day-to-day life of a city, but got to the heart, the, the center of worship? And it is an interesting thing, and we don't do this often, but I like to back out often and, and <clears throat> ask questions that we're so used to just doing, but we don't think about. If you're here this morning, just even in the walls of a church, whether you would even claim to be a Christian or not, you're actually entering into a time of what we call worship. You're entertaining it even, if you would say you're not a Christian. And that's not a word that we use often when we leave these doors. It's not like you go to your job and you go, what are you worshiping today? You know, like you don't ask that. But we do it. It's a part of who we are. And by being even in a church, at Christ Presbyterian Church Music Row, you're, you're making a statement that, okay, I'm here to worship. I'm here to actually ask questions about it, actually do what it means to worship, to put worth into something, the deepest centers of you so that it echoes out into the every day of your life. And so you're going to hear that about that in a city called Ephesus this morning. Hear this from Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 41. About that time, there arose no little disturb- disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this, this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even uh, may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and the Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd... The disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know what they had come to, why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians uh, uh, <clears throat> is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. 
and there are proconsuls, shall be settled and bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled by the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You know, we're going to look at two things from this passage that it really draws out. One is, how does their worship impact them practically? How does it impact them practically? And two is, how do they really see what worship is as powerful? So practical and powerful. And the first thing I hope you noticed in this passage, um, and you should ask this. I asked this after reading it, and, and it was interesting. It was good to be affirmed by even a couple of commentators to say, why is this in Acts? If you notice this passage, there is hardly any sermon mentioned. There's no conversions of people coming from one religion to Christianity. It seems very different than some of the other passages we've seen. Why in the world is this here? And if you look at it, because it's a, it's a city stirred up. And over two and a half years of Paul's work in Ephesus, a city that was beautiful, powerful, it was a banking center. It was a, a, incredible wealth. And you even saw that as they were talking about <clears throat> as Demetrius, who's not supposedly a Christian. Who knows? We don't know anything about him other than he was a silversmith and probably the leader of the silversmiths. He talks and says, Hey, from this business, we have our wealth. It's a city that's telling you we have a lot going on here. Fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Had beautiful 11 meter wide paved street from the harbor all the way to the theater, which you hear in this, was, which held 25,000 people. Columns that were glorious, that lined that street that was paved with marble. It was a beautiful city. And yet something is turning it on its head. Something is flipping it over. And what is that? What we get to see is on the other side of this, how the church that's called the way actually makes a city like Ephesus react. What happens when you read about the way? And I love Luke when he writes. He kind of writes comically. In verse 23 and 24, he says, About that time there arose no little disturbance. No little, why say no little disturbance? I mean, it's a little bit, no little disturbance. As if he's wanting you to catch something. Concerning the way. The way is what the Christians were called. In fact, no one was really called Christians then. In fact, Christians uh, or Christ followers was a derogatory term used by the empire about people who follow Jesus. So the way was actually what the church's name was. And you're getting to see, and I'm getting to see, what is it like when the church interacts with a city and in its everyday life? And we see it start with Demetrius, who is this person, the, the person who's mentioned the most, again, who's not an apostle. He's not, he's not a part of the church. He's a silversmith. And what they would do is they would make silver tokens for pilgrims, and sometimes they made coins that were a part of the banking system that had Artemis, who was the goddess of that time, on, imprinted on those silver coins. Sometimes they made small trinkets they would sell and they would give out. And he said, but he was seeing that there's a problem with his business. 
the way that is the church that was a part of being in the city that had kind of gotten into the life of the city, he started seeing his profit loss margin go down. And he started to ask, what is going on? Why am I seeing all these losses? And he realizes that Paul, the one who's been in, the, in that city for a while, his phrase, and notice he's not even quoting Paul. He says this, he says, this phrase that had gotten into their world saying that God's made with hands are not God's, had started to work into their life. And here's something that's really powerful about this. The problem that was going on that disturbed them wasn't an ethical one. It wasn't a doctrinal one. It was an economic one. It was the fact that the way, that is the church, came in contact with institutional idolatry of the city and it could not stand. It was bothering it. I ran into an article recently uh, in the Washington Post. Yeah, I don't know if you do this, but you know, on my feed, it just uh, pulls up things. And I saw this one. It was interesting. It was, it was writing, <clears throat> kind of giving commentary on a book called uh, The Great Dechurching. Uh, a lot of articles out there right now about why, why are people leaving church? Uh, why are churches shrinking? Why, is, you know, why are they growing? Why do people go to church? Why do they leave? But I thought this one was really interesting in the way they talked about the reason. They listed a number of things, but they said that what worries these two authors in particular was this. What concerned them was that the church only works for people so-called in America on the successful path in life. In other words, institutions in America tend to work for people who are on a traditional American path and unfortunately, it seems the church has become one of those American institutions. Very interesting if you think about what he's saying there. What he's saying is that has the church become like everything else in America? Thriving and moving into what is successful and what's not. That in our culture, as the American culture is, is what is it? for us to make a living? What does it mean for us to make something of ourselves, to stand out, whether individually or corporately? We, we want to be that. Has the church become more of that and bought into that institution than it has of what it is to be? It's interesting, years ago, uh, you may know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a, a German theologian who was a martyr in uh, World War II. He's a part of even an assassination attempt to take down Hitler. Um, he started underground seminaries. A, a amazing man, written a lot of wonderful things. But before he, was, he died in, in 1945, in the 30s, late 30s, he was able to come to, to America and actually, I mean, think about this in the 30s, to look at the American church from an outsider's point of view. And as a blunt German theologian does, he came over here and he looked and he, he gave his assessment uh, pretty harshly, saying, okay, the American church seems to be on a path of, it's very loud, uh, has a lot of, of, of width to it, but how much is its depth? What's really driving it? I think we need to ask a question when we see a passage like this one. Does it push on us in a way to go, okay, the way, that is the church of the first century, 
as it's making, as, as Christianity is moving into the scene, how does it move out into the world? What you see in Ephesians here, it, which, which is, a, a, why is this even written in Acts? I think is to show us that the church gets into not just little everybody's life, but clashes with the corporate and larger institutional idolatry of every city it comes in contact to. And, and I think we need to ask the question of ourselves, is our church just functioning in the normal success veins and trafficking in the normal success of our culture and American life? And not just culture war stuff. Are we just kind of moving along in the streams and trafficking in that? Or do we under, are we really seeing what does it mean for our church to identify things that really aren't of the gospel? The good news of what it means to be in Christ. You notice that phrase that, that really bothers Demetrius? <laughs> what is it? It's Paul saying, God's made with hands are not God's. And it's ruining our business. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Let's look at that phrase for a second. What is it pointing to? It's pointing to the fact that we can make anything we want of worship. It's essentially saying, and what Paul in his letter to the Romans begins the whole letter by saying in Romans chapter 1, a letter to another church in Rome saying, we've exchanged the glory of the creator for creation. It means that we've taken the creator, the one who's actually made everything and held creation even equal to or above him. And we simply take creation, and I think we do one of two things with it. We either worship it or we hate it. But let's take a few things for example. Uh, our work. Our work is one of the easiest places that we can do this. It's one of the places we can like give to and put things into. And it doesn't mean just in an office. It can mean in any place we want or work. Wherever we want to put into, we can worship it. We can spend the hours, the late nights, whatever it takes to get that project done, to, to move to the next phase that we put it in. And what else do we do? We end up hating it. <laughs> and it's all from what? Our hands. It's all what we can build up. It's all what we can use. And look, this is not just work in like your work. This is my work. This is all work. It's everywhere. Uh, what else? What other small ways can we do this? Let's just take yesterday. I love Saturdays. I love college football. But how crazy is it that for many of us in this room, what happens to a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds out on a football field can change our entire mood and feeling. Is that not true? I am totally included in that. It's awesome. But what, what, do, we, what do we love to build up and tear down? I've been really into documentaries lately. I don't know why. It's just kind of a thing. And maybe that's why my Netflix and Hulu feeds just keep feeding me documentaries because they data mine us. They don't, they don't, oh, we don't do that. Oh, yeah, we're just going to send you everything, right? Well, when you watch a documentary these days, especially the ones they put out now, what do they usually do? They give you a rise and fall of certain individuals. 
And they show you how easy it is, just as much as anything else, we, we love to build up and tear down not just things, but people. To hold someone up and do it. I mean, you could put anything in its place. What are the things that we want to build up and yet we can tear down? It could be our bodies, our food choices, our families, any sort of work we want. It could be anything. A post, a song, a life, a house. Look, you start thinking about what you do with your hands that set these things up to worship. This is what Ephesus was known for. Let me tell you what Ephesus was known for. And this is, you kind of pick it up here. Ephesus was known for being a city that whatever circumstances came its way, it shifted its power in order to let the, take it with it. So in this instance, the way comes in and they're all shaken up. And guess who comes in to calm them down? The clerk of the city. Oh, we got this. It's okay. We've always been good. We always still have the power in our hands. Don't worry about it. We're still known for being who we are in Artemis. Notice even verse 27. What Demetrius is worried about. The danger not only to our trade may come into disrepute, but the temple of the great Artemis who's known in Asia and worldwide for worship. And where does the clerk come in? The clerk comes in to calm them. <laughs> Say, oh, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that. See, notice, this doesn't just impact them in, everyday way, in, in one way, but in everyday ways. This isn't just an ethical thing. It's not just a doctrinal thing. It's economic. How does the worship that we have with our hands impact everything about what we do? Because look, life in here isn't just here. It's out there. It's whatever you're doing out there that, that comes back. It's the practical. It's the everyday that points to what are your resources? What are you building up? What do you, what do you really care about in life? And then when the clerk in this decides to calm him down, where does he go? What's really powerful? What are we known for? It's the argument of Artemis. Who is Artemis? Artemis is, was a Greek god. It's interesting because Artemis was actually pre-Greek. The name Artemis is before even Greek came. And the only thing we have for it connected in Latin is Diana. She was a huntress, moon god, something of that nature. And you hear in here what he mentions, the clerk does to them. Do we not know, men of Ephesus? Who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So apparently there was a, a meteorite that fell and that was a very important rock to them. And this is where they got the image of Artemis. In fact, in archaeological ways, they still see that rock. They've found that rock above the temple itself and having it right there. The columns surrounding it. And the, in, the, in the temple of Artemis was so profound. You know how we have the Parthenon here? It was said that, that Artemis's temple was four times the size of the Parthenon. I don't know if you've ever been to the Parthenon over here, the replica we have. Imagine 
four times that size. It was considered the seventh, one of the seven wonders of the world. So what they were known for, what it did is working backwards. Hey, I know it's bothering your economy, but let's go back. Where, who really takes care of us? It's Artemis. Do you see what's happening here? The clerk is trying to award, trying to get back to where do they, what really takes care of them? See, here's what all those practical things do. What your hands show, what you build up with, what you tear down with idols is out here. But what it really gets to is what is the control center of your life? See, isn't that what the clerk is even showing them? Hey, what really controls us? Who's it really in control? <laughs> Who really has us? Who really holds us? Who has the power? It's Artemis. And so they go back to that. It's so telling to us how much the way and this God, who is the true God, gets into the water of how worried they are. How anxious do we get when our true gods, our true control center, not just the things we're building up, but our true control center is threatened. The thing we really worship the most, when it really, 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 really comes down to it. This is why the heart is often used in the Bible. Because it is what really is not just your emotions, but your mind, your will, your whole self. It's what really your identity is. I, I, I don't know if you've watched these films before. I grew up watching them. Um, and um, The Atlantic wrote an article on the, the um, Sable brothers, who years ago essentially made what were called NFL films. Oftentimes, we, you may not watch football on TV, but you may wonder, why is there so, why is it have such a following? Why is it such a big deal? Well, these brothers are a big part of that. They actually took, in the early days of the films of you know, football, nobody wanted to watch football on TV ever. Watching any sort of sport on TV was pretty boring. What these brothers decided to do is to take West, old westerns and start to infuse those into NFL films. So this is why you started getting these voices for some of the films when you watch them back. You're like, and he takes the ball down the feet. You know, it's like this heavy voice. That came from them. And then you see the breath. They slow things down. You see the breath coming out of a face mask. Like these kind of slowing down of making it like these gladiators rather than they're just guys with pads on. And so their films had this huge movement into what was the, the uptick in American sports. But I love that this Atlantic article says, what's the end of football? And it talks about Canton, Ohio, where the, which he, he calls the holy of holies of uh, NFL comes to rest in terms of its, um, all the busts of those who've been in the Hall of Fame. It says, he says this, I compare the mood in this room, that is Canton, where grown men in their jerseys wander among stone heads, somber, serious, even a little sad, to the mood of a national memorial, like Lincoln Monument, say, where we bear witness to some crucial American moment. As I've hinted, football is a religion, a shared history of victories and defeats. It's all some people care about. 
Perhaps the sadness in the hall, that is the hall of fame, comes from the sense that even religions, especially pagan ones, can die. It's called the journey to the end of football. How do we know this worship is different than anything else? Is it just about someone standing up and stirring up the crowd and saying, great is God? (laughs) What's the difference between the temple of Artemis and the temple of our God? You know, at the end of the Gospels, it's interesting, right before this, Mark chapter 14, the end of Matthew and Luke, you actually read about Jesus being tried. And one of the things that they bring charges for, and I wonder if you remember this or or may not even know this, why was Jesus tried? Because they were hunting for things to bring against Jesus, the religious leaders particularly, because he was disturbing everything, right? Stirring up the crowds. Sound familiar? There was something he was doing that was just bothering the city. And one of the charges, if not the greatest charge they brought against him is that he made this claim, see this temple, I will tear it down and rebuild it in three days. And they said, and there was confusion along the way, this man says he's going to tear our temple down. And he's even crazier to think he's going to build it up in three days. But what was Jesus talking about? Was Jesus talking about the legitimate building? No, he was talking about himself. See, here, here's what's enormous about what Jesus said there, if you catch it. What if, what if different than Artemis or anything else fill in the blank? What if at the control center of our life is not a temple that we make with hands that can be built up and torn down, but one that could be torn down but raise again from the dead. And if that's the case, if Jesus is one who not only dies, but can rise again, not even death can hold him, the greatest enemy of anyone, including Artemis, wouldn't that transform the control center of your life to echo out into everything else? Do you know in the, in, in the book of Revelation, as, as this book ends, maybe a book you classically avoid, Revelation, it's the end of the Bible. Some of you may think, this is strange. <laughs> Why is this? Revelation is, is beautifully, if you want to put, and we can talk about it another time, is really theology and pictures. And at the beginning of that book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, you read before this account of Artemis with Jesus saying, I am the temple. There's letters that are written to specific churches, and the very first one is written to Ephesus. And listen to what he says. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. Jesus is not a distant custodian of his church. He's not someone that's distant, that came down like a rock. He came down in flesh. 
And the picture and image of him holding the lampstands is the lights of the church. He is intimately involved in this life. And not just on Sunday mornings, on every menial, mundane, ridiculous thing that you think you do during the week. He's not distant, he's a part of. And listen to what he challenges them. He says, after talking about and building them up about how great they are, he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What does he want them to know? It's not about your success. It's not about what you can do. It's about your love. It's about when you actually come to worship on a Sunday morning, worship isn't the menial, okay, we go through the songs, we walk through the thing, and I know it gets in all of our cycle of is this just like any other institution? What changes it? What changes it is if the temple that we worship, it isn't really this building at all. If the one that we actually worship was crushed and died and then lifted up again by his father, wouldn't that change everything about what you do? Wouldn't that transform your life? This is the one that transforms your love. This is what he, he's saying he has against the Ephesus church. Ephesian church is to say, you've forgotten your first love. Isn't that why we're bored? Isn't that why we're sad? Because what gets into the spaces of those things where we need God is his love. His love, it's not you being successful. It's his being powerful. Isn't that what this table is? Whose success is at this table? Does this look like any other institution that we could be a part of or set up? I mean, everything else, every time I leave these doors as your pastor, I encounter the opposite of this table often. Because I feel like it's up to me. You know what's awesome about being at this table? It's to recenter you, to remind you of what your control center is. It has to be the one who gave his body and blood. It has to be that. Otherwise, worship is nothing. You'll, we will continue to, if we set this, if this was set up by my hands or by someone else's hands, we could control the narrative, couldn't we? You could come to this table this morning and try and control Jesus' narrative and say, thank you, Jesus, for making me successful. Thank you for letting me do it my way or yours. But it's all his. And how does he do it? By giving you his body and blood. No Artemis. No fill in the blank, nothing else we could make with our hands could ever do what this God has done. How great is our God? In a minute, we're about to sing Amazing Grace. Don't let those words that are old words of an old hymn just go by you. Let it wash over you of how great is our God. And if you're here this morning, and maybe this is like, this interesting you're toying, maybe you've come back into the walls of the church or, or, or this morning, maybe you're visiting, you're like, it's okay, and you, but you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. I'd encourage you not to come take of this table. 
Don't do it like just because everybody else is. Then it just becomes a menial thing. This becomes something of our hands because this is a lot more than that. And I'd encourage you to come to Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you say, I follow him, but I'm tired. I am too. I'm exhausted. I need God. I need how great God is and not how great I am. My shoulders can't carry what I think they can over and over and over. So let's come to this table worshiping that God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.